Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 207. And today in the show, I'm joined by Whit Fosberg of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership to discuss possibly the largest private lands conservation bill in America and how it impacts hunters. And that, of course, is the Farm Bill. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today on the show, we are talking about private lands conservation. You know, we we hear so much about these big conservation initiatives related to public lands, but of course, conservation is important on private land too. And for most of us whitetail hunters, especially those of us that are hunting east of the Mississippi, it's private land really that most of us depend on. You know, public land, of course, is still super important, but to be honest, I think the numbers do clearly show that most of us whitetail guys are private land hunters the majority of the time. But you just don't hear a whole lot about the stuff that's going on to protect and improve and conserve those areas. But that doesn't mean there's not stuff going on. And that's why we're doing today's podcast, because there is actually an absolutely huge private lands conservation bill that's up for debate this year. And we hunters and our voices, we're going to be needed to make sure this bill positively impacts fish and wildlife and wild places. And this bill is the Farm Bill. You've probably heard of it, but if you're not kind of deeply tapped into the conservation world, you may not really realize that the Farm Bill doesn't just have to do with farmers. It actually covers a vast array of different issues, including a whole lot of stuff related to habitat and wildlife and hunters. So today, to help make sense of this massive bill, and all of its implications on hunting and wildlife and habitat, we're going to be joined by Whit Fosberg of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. And I know what you're thinking. The Farm Bill, this this sounds like a snooze fest. And yes, I mean, this isn't going to be quite as, as fun maybe as a deep dive conversation into hunting strategies or some big, you know, whitetail or Alaskan adventure. It, we're not going to have that conversation. But as we have talked about many times here on the podcast, we hunters, we do have a responsibility. You know, hunting is a consumptive activity, meaning that we take from the landscape that we recreate on. And if we're going to take something from these wild places and wild animals, whether that's taking a life or a week's worth of rest and relaxation or a lifelong memory or maybe just a pile of mushrooms or antlers, if we're taking something, it's our responsibility to give back too. And it's, it's not always going to be fun. It's not always going to be easy. It's not always what we want to talk about. But it is on us to give back and make sure these places and animals and opportunities are available in the future. And so that is why I think these kinds of conversations and issues are so important for us as a hunting community. And even just as like our little tight podcast family here, it's it's important for us to spend some time on this stuff, I believe, too. So today, that's what we're going to do. And, and I commend you. And if I could, I'd high five you or shake your hand for taking the time to dig into this one with an open mind and some curiosity. The Farm Bill is jam-packed with programs that can positively impact us hunters if they're funded and approved. And we've got that opportunity this year to make sure that happens. So stick with me here today, learn a bit about the Farm Bill, maybe make a few calls or emails, and then we can get right back into big, rutting, stinky bucks and wild adventures in the great outdoors and all that kind of good stuff. Does that sound good? Good. 
All right, then we're going to take a quick break for our Sitka story of the day, and then I'll bring Wit on the line with me to dive into private lands conservation and the Farm Bill. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Don Vidash, who tells us about an eye-opening encounter he had in southeastern Kansas. Well, Spencer, it's an interesting... Uh, <laughs> the Sitka stories have, have been intriguing to me. I'm an avid follower of the podcast, and, and I've had a couple uh, defining uh, moments in uh, in my own career and one really was an eye-opener for me back in 2015 i had a particularly large buck that i was after in kansas probably the biggest one i had i had ever chased and had a lot of camera pictures of him and uh was really waiting him out and got down to kansas just on a great cold front in november and uh got into where i thought he would be and uh sure enough around 11:30 a.m. he comes walking in uh into the field I was I was sitting in uh with a few does and uh I snort wheezed at him uh, just trying to get aggressive and and he took one look over at me and just came charging in like a bull uh stopped staring at me head on at 10 yards uh eyeball to eyeball and is is one of those moments where you know your camouflage really gets tested and and right about then he he looked away and took one step and and that that was one of his last and for me that was really one of those uh moments where you wonder you know how things are working and 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 i had the wind in my face and i just knew at that time that uh the camouflage was working for me uh you know as hunters i think we always have questions you know, is my wind good? Is, is my, is my setup good? Is, is my equipment solid? And, and in that moment, I knew uh, that all that was clicking. On Don's hunt, which was a bitterly cold sit, he was wearing Sitka's phonetic system. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own, or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit sitkagear.com. All right, with us now is Whit Fosberg from the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. Thanks for being with us, Whit. Mark, always great to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I got to tell you, the work you guys are doing, um, for me personally, I found it so beneficial. When I first discovered what you guys were up to maybe, I don't know, five, six years ago maybe, um, and since I started following, just the information, the resources you guys put out through your newsletter and your website, I don't know how people could could learn about this stuff and, and understand what's going on in the hunting and fishing conservation world if you guys weren't doing what you do. So just big thank you for me right off the get-go for, for doing such helpful work. Well, we appreciate that. And, uh, you know, there's... You talk about one of the problems, which is there are so many different things that are going on and a lot of them are so complicated that... You know, the average, you know, hunter out there looks at it and they just, you know, eyes glaze over and you don't pay much attention. And so that's what we get paid to do is to work on to make sure that somebody is paying attention. And just so your listeners understand, you know, we're a coalition of about 56 different organizations from, you know, Mule Deer Foundation and National Deer Alliance to Fences Forever and Ducks Unlimited, but also Outdoor Industry Association and AFL-CIO because... 70% of their 12 million members hunt and fish. 
And what we try to do is really bring all those diverse voices together to speak in a common voice on the big issues affecting hunting and fishing and conservation in America, like, you know, public lands policy or agriculture policy. Yeah, and I think that's what you just said right there, agriculture policy, was what I was hoping we could focus on today because I think that a lot of people are aware of what's going on with conservation in relation to public lands. There's been a lot of talk lately over the last you know several years about what's what's happening with our public lands and some of the different things we need to be aware of on that front. But when it comes to private land stuff, which is, is what most deer hunters, especially east of the Mississippi, are dealing with, we don't talk about a whole lot. Uh, you know, we kind of just talk about, at least the average deer hunter is talking about maybe what kind of habitat work we can do on our own properties to help deer. Um, but there's not a whole lot of talk about some of the bigger picture programs or regulations or anything like that that, you know, impacts all of us across the country when it comes to private land conservation. And I know that the farm bill is a big piece of that. So what I'm hoping today you can help us understand what is this thing what is this beast of legislation why does it matter and i guess maybe that maybe before i ramble any further can we start right there can you just tell us what is the farm bill why does it matter for deer hunters yeah so i mean you're you're exactly right a lot of the attention a lot of our attention is uh, sort of applied to you know big sexy issues like you know public lands policy and you know things like that but you know, 70% of this country is in, you know, private land ownership, and about half of that is in agricultural production or commercial timber production. And so, and I, the stats I've seen is about, you know, somewhere around, you know, 70% of the hunters out there, you know, hunt on private lands predominantly. And so it makes a really big difference. And the Farm Bill actually dates all the way back to the Depression and Franklin Roosevelt. And it was part of his efforts to really stabilize, you know, the collapse in the farming economy and the Dust Bowl and all that at that time by creating incentives for, you know, landowners to do the right things by their lands. Uh, it's evolved since the 1930s, and really the conservation parts of the Farm Bill began in the 1980s. And there were sort of two goals there. One, we were seeing, you know, a rapid decline in, you know, wetlands and prairie habitat and, you know, things like that. So there was a conservation need. We also were in a crisis in the farm states where prices were low and you were seeing, you know, small farmers just getting out of business. And so it was sort of, you know, one part, you know, doing the right thing for conservation and one part, a basically a price support program for the farmers to set aside land, not farm it and get a payment for it. And that was a way of keeping them in business. And I think that nobody at that time really knew just how beneficial it was going to be. But, you know, as the results came in, as we saw sort of huge rebounds in pheasant populations and duck populations and whitetails and turkeys and you know, a lot of the other things we like to chase, people really started to understand and expand upon, you know, the conservation side of the farm bill. And, uh, you know, in the sort of grown up and down over time, and the last farm bill was in 2014, and at that time, we saw a you know a cut in the conservation programs. We saw a cut in the overall farm bill. Um, you know, every program pretty much in there was reduced in some fashion. But there was a big cut, about three billion dollar cut, in you know the conservation side. And it's but it's still even with that today we were spending about five point seven billion dollars to through the farm bill to promote conservation on private lands, which really makes it the single largest conservation program in this country. 
and about 50 million acres out there are enrolled in you know some conservation program or another. So it has a huge impact. Um, I, there are a few different. All, I mean, one thing important to understand about the Farm Bill is it's all about voluntary incentives for conservation. Uh, this is the non-regulatory approach to conservation, and a lot of people get ticked off when they think about EPA or various other regulatory programs, all of which are necessary. But for private landowners out there, you know, they don't want to be threatened. They want to see you know, if we can be in partnership with the government to do the right thing. And uh, it, one of the things we saw in the 2014 Farm Bill was, you know, the conservation side since the 1980s had really grown and, you know, programs and all sorts of different programs had popped up to the point where it was getting really complicated for the individual landowner about, you know, should I enroll in this or that? And so as a way of reducing some of the costs of the programs, a lot of that was consolidated in 2014. So went down to much more, more than half the programs were, you know, sort of evolved and moved into other programs that were existing, which actually makes it, you know, I think, a lot easier if you're a landowner out there to participate. Um, and then, you know, that was where a lot of that $3 billion worth of savings were in the 2018 Farm Bill. Now, as we're looking at 2000, excuse me, the 2014 Farm Bill, as we're looking at 2018, we have a very different landscape today than we did four years ago. At that time, corn prices, wheat prices, soybean prices, pretty much at record highs. And it was very hard for the conservation programs to compete um, with somebody who's planting those, turning those fields into row crops. Uh, It was just so lucrative for the farm folks back then. Uh, we have a very different situation today. Uh, prices are low. You know, farmers out there are not doing well right now, and they're clamoring to get into the conservation programs. But a lot of those programs, like the Conservation Reserve Program, got capped in 2014. So CRP, Conservation Reserve Program, is probably one of the most famous programs out there. If you're a deer hunter, you probably know about it. If you're a pheasant hunter, you definitely know about it. But this is you know, a lot of the and a program folks can enroll to take, you know, the idea of highly erodible areas out of production uh, and also sensitive, you know, environmental areas. So let's say stream corridors on a field, you know, deep, steep slopes that were really pretty marginal for planting in the first place. A lot of those areas got entered into CRP, uh, not only just to sort of go wild, but then, you know, there are also incentives to, you know, produce, you know, put in, for example, you know, uh, seed mixes for pollinators and for other species. And uh, that just made, you know, tremendously good habitat. Um, that program it went, was at its height about 37 million acres around the country. And a farmer enters into it and they get a payment and it, they make a commitment of 10 to 15 years to not, you know, basically plow up that land and keep it in conservation and manage it. And, uh, you know, so from 37 million acres at its height, it went down to 24 million acres in 2014. Not because anybody in Congress was evil or didn't like conservation. The the bottom line was it was really hard to compete with high commodity prices. So this was a way of saving money because people weren't enrolling anyway. So, but today, you know, as I mentioned, it's a very different situation. We're trying to get that number up into the 30s, you know, 32, 35 million acres. Um, because there's plenty of demand for that, and if you can add, you know, you know, eight, you know, ten million acres um, to into good conservation and good habitat, that has direct application to hunting and fishing. So that's the sort of short take of where we are. Um, it's probably worth talking a little bit about the different types of programs that we have in the Farm Bill. 
Um, and yeah. one is, you know, we just mentioned, you know, conservation reserve program, which a lot of folks are familiar with. Uh, there are longer-term easement programs where you basically set aside, you know, really you know, sensitive areas, you know, in perpetuity, and obviously you get a lot more money for that. Um, but that's really an idea of, you know, not having to just sort of keep writing a check every, you know, 10 years, but areas we know should never be, you know, put back under the plow, you know, getting them off. Uh, there are other programs like the, you know, what's known as the EQUIP program that will fund things like improving your irrigation system so you use less water and, you know, in the same time you return some of that saved water to the stream, which is great for fish, or just irrigate a little more sensitively. Um, you know, programs like that are more, you know, sort of fixes with, you know, actually going in there and turning over some dirt and putting in structures, but that's all eligible under the Farm Bill, too. One of the cool things that we did in 2008 is we added a public access program to the Farm Bill, and it's known as the Voluntary Public Access Habitat Improvement Program, and it was really actually the brainchild of TRCP's founder, a guy named Jim Range, and uh, he had always thought that you know this was a great way of promoting conservation but also expanding public access because, as you know, you know, loss of access is, if not the number one, is certainly one of the top two reasons that people stop hunting mm -hmm. and fishing. Yeah. And uh, so Jim recognized that if we could create some incentives for private landers, not only to do good things for conservation, but also to open those lands to public hunting and fishing, it would be a win-win for everybody. So in 2008, a pilot program got put in, but the VPA HIP is a more official title for it. Uh, it got expanded into a $50 million program in the 2014 Farm Bill, and it has just been a phenomenal success. I mean, not only has it supplemented, you know, states that have traditional walk-in programs like Kansas and Montana, um, but it has, you know, created incentives for states like Massachusetts and Connecticut to create these walk-in programs. And it's, you know, we think in the first, you know, that first section of the Farm Bill from the 2008 Farm Bill, it added about 3 million acres of private land to public access. And the way that works is, you know, a state applies for a grant from the Department of Agriculture, you know, say a million dollars. It gets it, and then it uses that money to go out and enter into individual contract with willing landowners. And so landowners get a payment uh, in exchange for the state promises to, you know, put up the signage, you know, monitor access, and also the state assumes liability. So if somebody, you know, steps in a ditch and breaks their leg, landowner doesn't have to worry about being sued. Uh, that program, again, was expanded to $50 million in the 2014 Farm Bill. According to our friends at the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, they say that, you know, demand right now could easily fill a program's $150 million. Uh, which would add you know, millions more acres of private land to public hunting and fishing. And so we've had bills dropped in the House and the Senate just on that one program, bipartisan, Republicans and Democrats, uh, that would expand that to $150 million program. So, you know, in addition to the good things for conservation, uh, we also have a direct, direct tie to public access in the Farm Bill through the VPA HIP program. How, what, how do you... How do hunters find where these places are? Uh, I feel like a lot of people don't even realize that these kinds of programs are in place in a lot of states. And to your point, access is such a challenge for so many of us. Where do they get the info, and, and what all states do utilize this program? Well, it's funny because you know, every state has their own way of advertising it, and it's, that's actually been one of my pet peeves is there's not one 
you know, if I'm, I'm flying into Pure, South Dakota to go pheasant hunting, I can't, you know, sort of click on my access app and all of a sudden have, you know, pop up all around me these walking areas and, you know, what the rules are with them. So what you got to do now is you got to go to the individual state websites and find out about it. So like in your state of Michigan, it's the hunter access, hunting access program. And what you will do is you'll go in there and, you know, you Google that and it will tell you where those areas are and if there are any special rules associated with them. And Illinois is called the Illinois Recreational Access Program or IRAP. Um, you know, in Iowa, it's the Hunter, Illinois Hunter, excuse me, Illinois Habitat and Access Program, IHAP. And, uh, you know, so there, every state calls it something a little bit different, uh, block grant programs, and that's what it's called in some states. So what you really just got to do is, you know, go to your state agency's website, you know, Google it and find out where these areas are. There will be maps. You can click on them. That should, they should pop up and tell you about where the access points are and if there are any special rules and regs about going on them. Um, but it's, you know, it's a really good program right now. And what we're trying to do is get that expanded and also make sure that it's targeted. For example, if you target some of those areas that, say, abut a national forest, uh, then you can you know, get access to those, but you can also then get access to the national forest behind it, which may have been you know, inaccessible to most hunters. I mean, you think about how the, you know, for example, in the West, how a development happened. And that is, you know, the private landowners took all the good land down at the river bottoms, and then, you know, the mountains behind them, that's where the national forests are. And in the old days, you could always just knock on someone's door, walk across their land, and, you know, go hunt the national forest. And that has changed. People are afraid of liability. You know, a rich, you know, Silicon Valley billionaire has, you know, bought that parcel and popped up no trespassing signs. So we have lost a lot of access, not only to private land, but to public lands that traditionally could be accessed but no longer can be. And so if you use something like, you know, there are these programs, the voluntary public access, you know, programs of the Farm Bill, you can really be using them strategically, you know, to access some of those lands that have become inaccessible. Right. So, so here's the question I've got about this kind of thing because the the voluntary public access portion of this just it seems like such a home run, such a no brainer benefit to especially to hunters. Um, but the question is, how do we help with something like this? Because I, and this is maybe a larger question too. But when you look at the farm bill, it's it seems to be this convoluted combination of all these different programs and pieces and parts. Um, but then you also see things like this program that are getting talked about even outside of the farm bill. I think that you guys call this a marker bill. I was reading about how just yeah. recently, mm-hmm. yeah, so just recently a handful of um, congressmen proposed some updates to this. I think just this last week about some updates for this new version of the, of the VPA. Um, so how does that work and how do we hunters say, yes, we really want this. We want this expanded. Um, do we do we need to work on it right now because of this new proposal, or do we wait until the farm bill debates are really happening? So that's a great question, and uh, you know the farm bill debates are happening right now, and the way the farm bill works it has so many diverse programs. I mean, you know the food stamp program in this country is under the farm bill. You know, in addition to you know crop insurance, in addition to the conservation you know payments. So there is a ton that goes on. The way it often happens is that individual portions of the farm bill, members will break them off, introduce what we call marker bills, and that's where they can be discussed and they can be modified because once everything is put together, it's just become it's so big and it's hard to get your arms around. Um, you do a lot of that sort of 
you know, I'll say negotiating and fine-tuning with these marker bills. And then assuming you build some good bipartisan support and you take care of any unanticipated problems, then you know, hopefully that becomes what gets moved into the bigger farm bill. Um, so as you just mentioned, you know, we have now Senate versions and House versions of a new voluntary public access bill. And the, really the main change in it is that it's just a bigger bill. It goes from $50 million to $150 million. And uh, we think it's going to have broad bipartisan support. The Senate bill was, you know, Senator Bennett, Democrat from Colorado, Senator Crapo, uh, Republican from I- Idaho. Uh, four members, including your, you know, Debbie Dingell from Michigan, you know, were the co-sponsors in the House side. Anyone can go to our website, which is uh, trcp.org, and click on our farm bill stuff, and they get all the details. But first, you know, thank the folks that have introduced this. Two, urge your own congressperson to get in there and support this program and broadly support conservation of the farm bill. The challenge that we're going to be under is, especially now that, you know, Congress has, you know, done the tax bill, they've, you know, approved a two-year budget, you know, that spends a ton of money, there is going to be a lot more pressure than usual on the farm bill to cut money. And because, you know, there are a few folks out there that actually think deficits still matter, and they see the farm bill as a giant chunk of cash. And what we don't want to see happen is a lot of these conservation programs be the ones that get sacrificed you know, in exchange for spending in other areas. So I'd say two things. One, you know, argue for the voluntary public access program expansion uh, in the you know, whatever house or the Senate farm bill. And two, really push back on the notion of cuts to conservation. If anything, we ought to be doubling down on conservation. Uh, a couple of points here. I mean, we obviously on this administration does not like the idea of you know EPA and regulatory enforcement, which is fine. But if you're not going to go out there and enforce things to regulation, you better double down on voluntary incentives to do the right things. And areas like programs like the Farm Bill, with its you know the grasslands programs, wetlands programs, you know CRP, all the rest. I mean, those are natural you know, programs to improve water quality. So if you don't like dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico, in Lake Erie, off the coasts of Florida, other places, you need to double down on these voluntary incentives for conservation. And uh, you know, so I think that, and I also would argue, and I think that the economics back this up, that these aren't just handouts to farmers. I mean, these are good for local economies. I mean, I remember when the walk-in program was first started in Kansas, and it was years ago, and it brought so many people that came to the state to go pheasant hunting, and there were so many you know, ripple effects to the economy, motel rooms, diners, sporting goods shops, you name it. All of a sudden, the counties were sending checks to the state government to expand those areas because they saw what it was doing locally for the economy. I don't know if you noticed, but this past week, you know, the Bureau of Economic Analysis release statistics on the outdoor recreation economy in this country, and it is massive. And hunting and fishing play a really big part in that. And, uh, you know, so I would argue that any investments we make in conservation and expanding hunting and fishing are also investments in our economy. Yeah. So uh, taking a, or zooming back, I guess, a little bit, excuse me, zooming out, uh, you talked a little bit about this as far as what you think might be going on with the current administration and some of these pressures, but can you speak a little more on what the overall prognosis is You know, coming into the 2018 debate? Do we feel good about what's happening, or is this like an area that we are concerned about and the hunting and fishing community really needs to um, 
get into get into action here and make sure that we don't have any negative outcomes? Well, I mean, you know, one thing that having been around this town for a very long time has told us is you never take anything for granted. And the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So I think we're in a pretty good place with the Farm Bill moving forward. But in, unless, you know, members of Congress hear from constituents like ours that care about conservation, that care about public access, they're going to be hearing a whole lot from commodity groups. They're going to be hearing a whole lot from other folks that have vested interests in this. And our job is to make sure that our voices are heard as well, and not in a shrill way, but you know, using facts, you know, talking about water quality, talking about local economic impact, talking about how important these programs are to getting our kids you know, away from the TV screen or their video games and out into the field. And I think, yeah, but you know, we cannot, nobody can assume that you know, everyone, somebody else is making that case. We all need to weigh in on this one. Fair enough. So what are, what are some of the other programs? You were going through the list of the different pieces of this. Um, what's next? Yeah, I mean, there's a, I mean, there's a variety of things. The, the big ones in the Farm Bill, I mean, there's the what we call ASEP, or the Agricultural Conservation Easement Program. And that's the one we talked about that you know, sort of you know, allows these larger parcels to be preserved you know, long-term. Uh, we have the Conservation Reserve Program, which are short-term, you know, 10, 15 years tops contracts to take land out of production, and ideally, you know, some of the you know higher quality, you know, or more less high quality agricultural areas, but important ecologically, you know, stream corridors, highly erodible areas, places like that. We have the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, Equip. And I mentioned that one, you know, that is, uh, you know, there have been a whole lot of wildlife investments on that one. I use the example of converting an irrigation system to make it a little more fish friendly. Uh, but there are a bunch of other things that can be done under that. A new program that was created in the 2014 Farm Bill, was something called the Regional Conservation Partnership Program, or RCPP. And the idea there was to really target conservation investments on large-scale watersheds or, you know, large-scale areas. But in the past, you know, the conservation part of the Farm Bill could sort of be considered, you know, a, you know thousands of acts of random kindness. Uh, RCPP was an idea of let's get folks, you know, diverse interests, conservation groups, farm groups, you know, conservation districts, others in a big watershed or a big area, so let's say the, the upper Missouri watershed in Montana, something like that, and get them all working together and create public-private partnerships to really make sure that you know, we're having a broader you know, impact on what we're doing. It's not just isolated parcels, but it's really affecting entire you know, landscapes. Uh, that is a program that's because it was new, there were some you know, bugs in it, and we're getting those worked out, but that's something that really requires you know, additional investment moving forward. I mentioned the Voluntary Public Access Program, uh, which is the you know, public access part of the Farm Bill. And then really the last big one that is in, you know, sort of our, you know, that I think that your listeners really should care about is something called conservation compliance. And this is where we sort of morph a little bit into the regulatory side. So we, we went away from, in the previous farm bill, sort of direct payments to landowners to subsidize their production. Uh, instead, we basically said, you'll get a payment if your crop fails. You're not going to get a payment if you're doing fine, and uh, which makes sense. Um, so that's crop insurance. But... In order for that to work, it has to be linked to conservation. And so otherwise, you have an incentive to go up there and you know, dig up and plant the worst land on your farm, knowing that it's probably going to fail, but who cares because you're going to get a payment you're gonna, from crop insurance because it failed. 
Now, that is just you know, bad public policy, and it's bad for fish and wildlife. So it was really controversial. We managed to get it in in the 2014 you know, Farm Bill, which is that relinking you know, conservation compliance with crop insurance. So today, you, want, you can go up and you can plow up those areas, but you're not going to be eligible for a crop insurance payment. And which is you know, plenty of incentive to you know, keep folks from you know, basically plowing up those areas that should never get plowed up. So we've got to, and, you know, part of the ag community is after those and wants to see that taken away because they see that as too much intrusion on how they do business. In my mind, it is basic good governance that we do not want to be subsidizing bad practices. And so if, to the extent that your listeners want to weigh in on conservation compliance and make sure that that remains, you know, linked to crop insurance, that is a, a really important program too. That's good to know. So we've got we've got CRP, which is incentivizing landowners to develop better habitat for wildlife, and and, and it's incentive it's an incentive. So they're they're benefiting mm-hmm. it from it too. We've got the voluntary access programs. We've got easement programs that preserve areas long term. We've got ways to help you know landowners better comply with some of the things that are going to protect some of these places. There's a whole bunch of different pieces of this pie. And you spoke yep. to this a little bit when it came to the, the voluntary access standpoint, how we can be calling our representatives and supporting that. Um, so we, I guess what I'm starting to say here is we can call our representatives, we can email our representatives, but is there any, is there any kind of focused, um, targeted other actions that we should be taking? You know, sometimes there's petitions or different things like that for specific aspects. Is there anything like that? Yeah, you can go on. There are a couple of things. Uh, we've got, a, you know, first of all, there is a whole you know, sport of sports and priorities for conservation and access in the 2018 Farm Bill. It's a publication we produced. Uh, if you go to trcp.org slash farm bill, you will find it, and it will be all our detailed recommendations for what's, you know, what we want to see out of the Farm Bill. And it's not just us. I mean, there are 24 different groups that are part of our agricultural working group. Uh, groups that really care about you know these things. It's a very diverse group. I mean, it ranges from the American Fishery Society to the Association of State Fish and Wildlife Agencies and Ducks Unlimited, but you know also from you know Trout Unlimited, um, Wildlife Society, Wildlife Management Institute, Western Landowners Alliance. You know, so it is very much the you know the big picture, and this is basically our collective vision of what needs to happen in the Farm Bill. So folks can go to that, and then they can get much more detail and you know figure out how to you know contact their congressmen and all the rest. There is another specific site that we have called CRP Works, and that is a dedicated website just about CRP, and it has petition and sign up, and you get more information. And uh, because CRP is such an important part of the farm bill for our community, we have created a separate you know site there. So those will give you, I think, any listeners that want to go on, uh, we'll give them places and really show how they can take action on this. Uh, but the key thing is really just to take action. Don't assume that somebody else is doing this stuff for you. That's that's definitely important. And I guess one more time, I want to just double check on timing. Is there a time mm-hmm. that is the very most impactful? You know, any time now is a good time because you know we think the House of Representatives is going to put in a farm bill within the next couple of weeks. They're going to drop their big bill. Uh, Senate will not be far behind. Um, we are told that you know they're going to try to move this before the you know, summer recess, which is basically the end of July, beginning of August. Um, you know, so and that's that's going to come pretty fast. So we'll have a better idea in the next few weeks about what's in the various bills, and we'll have more sort of specific advice to give to our you know our members, our supporters, our partner groups. Uh, if 
any of your folks want to just sign up as a, you know sign up on our site, they're going to get weekly updates as to what's moving through Congress and what they can do. Um, and you know, so I would say that is a first step. But uh, you know, I think that you know the farm bill is unlike any other program really in Congress because it is not a partisan bill. It generally breaks down along geographic lines much more than Republican Democratic lines. And in a year when, you know, any time when Congress wants to show it can bring home the bacon, it tries to pass farm bills in election years. Um, because with the end, we don't have earmarks anymore. This is one way that they can really show they've you know, brought something back to folks that matter in their states. And the, the reason that the farm bill passes is because there is an alliance between urban members and rural members. The urban members get their nutrition assistance, their food stamps, Rural members get their you know, price programs, get their conservation programs. Uh, you know, so we don't want to be doing is going in there and railing against you know, food stamps or something because this is part of the coalition that keeps um, the farm bill alive and viable. Because if we ever break off, just you know, rural America versus urban America, we are screwed. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, folks need to remember that. You know, set the politics aside, focus on the farm bill, and. Uh, and really push for something to get done, you know, sooner rather than later. And I think that the we're hearing a lot from the farm community, and especially the small farmers out there that are under a lot of financial stress right now. They're very supportive of you know the farm bill and the conservation programs because they see it as a way if they can ride out these tough times. Whereas maybe four years ago, they thought they didn't need the conservation programs. That has changed. So I think the timing is really good to get something that's positive uh, with this farm bill. But, you know, just D.C. is so dysfunctional these days that you, you, you just can't assume anything. Yeah, can't take anything for granted these days. No. Well, this is, this is great, though, because I think that when people hear the farm bill, if they don't know anything about it, they just assume, unless they're a farmer themselves, they, they assume it has nothing to do with me. And then if they do realize that there is some benefits within it to the hunting and fishing and outdoor community, they just might get confused by the whole alphabet soup of all the different programs and acronyms, and it's just kind of a murky swamp to wade through. So I'm glad you broke it down by a few of the most important programs that we can kind of wrap our heads around, and the action items I think are are clear. Um, I want to shift gears to one final alphabet soup acronym here that's not in the farm bill but i do want to touch on this and that's the land and water conservation fund um sure because i know this is something that is up for debate again this year can you fill us in on the latest with lwcf and maybe for those that aren't familiar really quick what is it why is it important and then what's happening right now well it's it's a great question and this is another hugely important federal program for you know sportsman's access so the Land and Water Conservation Fund was created in 1965, and it was a deal basically between you know the oil and gas industry and you know conservation interests. And so the deal was we're going to open up the Outer Continental Shelf to oil and gas development. In exchange, the oil and gas industry will pay in 900 million dollars a year into a fund, the Land and Water Conservation Fund, that will be used to you know protect. You know, at-risk natural areas through acquisition, through easement. The program also supports state parks, so there's a local you know, benefit as well. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a great compromise, and the, really the way you know governing is supposed to work. And it passed essentially unanimously in the Senate. In the 50 plus years since the Land and Water Conservation Fund was created, only one time has it been fully funded. 
Instead, Congress gets all those receipts, or the, government, the federal government gets all those receipts, but Congress decides, well, we're actually going to hijack that money and put it someplace else. So in a typical year, you may get $300, $400 million going into the fund, which is still a lot of money. It's a lot less money than it was in 1965, but it's still important for you know, doing targeted acquisitions, for easement programs, for parks. Uh, initially, it had a 50-year authorization. Uh, that expired three years ago. We got a three-year extension. In theory, this program run, is no, no longer authorized at the end of September this year. So we want really two things. One, we want it reauthorized. And two, we want it fully funded. Um, you will hear complaints of some folks, well, gosh, you know, the federal government can't take, can't take care of the land it has. Why should we add more to it? A couple of responses to that. First of all, you know, a relatively small part of this is acquisition. Uh, a lot more of it is easements. And uh, it's just keeping highly in, in very important areas from getting developed. I mean, we're not making any more land. And as you know, as I know, living around here in D.C., you know, the, the march of sprawl is relentless. And the places that, you know, I could hunt when I was a kid, you know, are now, you know, full-fledged, you know, shopping malls, subdivisions, all the rest. So LWCF is really important for protecting some of those special places. It's all done through willing sellers. There's no condemnation that goes in there. Um, and it's also incredibly important, I mentioned before, like in part of connecting, you know, off-limits public lands through to the public again. So Land and Water Conservation Fund is one of those things that we can use to go in there and do that easement on a 1,000-acre ranch at the foothills of some mountains uh, that then connects the public with an area that it can no longer get to to go hunting. Um, so there are all sorts of benefits with this. There was a, you know, a cool piece, I think it was in uh, one of the outdoor rags, I think Field and Stream or Outdoor Life, that talked about a world record bighorn that was shot not too long ago in an island in Montana, and that island was bought through with LWCF funds. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's things like that, that uh, this is a mom and apple pie, you know, program for sportsmen. And it is, again, just another one of these sort of travesties, the way we run our government, that this money was set aside for this purpose and is not being used for that purpose. And it's billions of dollars that should have gone into conservation over the past 50 years have been subverted for other things. And we ought to just be putting our foot down and saying that, you know, this is incredibly important. It's not just incredibly important for hunting and fishing and water quality, but for you know, bird watching and hiking. And you know, this is one of those programs that has really broad bipartisan support for conservation interests. But there are some, basically, the fighting folks that really don't like public lands and want to get rid of the public lands are dead set in fighting you know, this program. So then, it, 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 like you said, every time I hear about this, every time I read something about this, it just seems like such a no-brainer positive What's the action that we need to take to make sure that we don't see this cut or not reauthorized or not refunded? Contact your congressman, contact the uh, you know, Trump administration, and say that the Land and Water Conservation Fund is an incredibly important program for sportsmen, and that you know Congress ought to reauthorize it and fully fund it. Perfect. Simple enough, right? <laughs> Very simple. Right. And again, you can go to our website and you'll find out lots more about that. We did a report that's on our website a few years ago, just laid out 10 examples of how Land and Water Conservation Fund has been used for you know, great sportsman's access programs. Excellent. Well, Whit, while we have you, I guess, is there anything else that is top of your mind that, that we need to be knowing about that's happening right now in D.C. or elsewhere pertaining to deer hunters or public land or overall conservation? Anything else that we need to be keeping our eyes on? 
Yeah, there's a cool thing that uh, was announced out of the Department of the Interior, Secretary Zinke, a couple of weeks ago, and it's a big emphasis on migration corridors. And listen, I've been very critical of Secretary Zinke. I mean, I was a big supporter of his when he came in, but felt that he had just sort of bent over backwards to open up areas to development and done nothing for conservation since then. Um, but to his credit, you know, they announced a new secretary order to require all the agencies within Department of the Interior to work together to protect and strengthen migration corridors. And, you know, I mean, we have sportsmen know that animals migrate and, you know, held my hunting places and my camp is in the Adirondacks and, you know, the whitetails out of there migrate out of our place every year down to, you know, an area 20 plus miles away where they basically overwinter. In places like Montana, there's new research on mule deer migrations. Um, and they've been, you know, National Geographic others have covered really cool stuff. The path of pronghorn. We know a lot more than we used to know about these migration corridors. So you can preserve a lot of these big game species pretty simply by targeting, you know, let's keep development out of these corridors. Let's really focus on, you know, working with the states and private landowners to fix some fencing problems we might have. If we have an overpass or an underpass that needs to go on a highway, let's work with the Department of Transportation on that. I mean, it's really a no-brainer, but, you know, until this, this executive order that came out, there really never been an emphasis from the Department of the Interior to focus on that. So I think that's worth noting, and I think that's something that's really cool. And we hope that it becomes more than just a secretary order, that some real you know, meat gets put on those bones, and that that's something great for the hunting community. Yeah, I agree. When I saw that, that was uh, that was good news that I was glad to see. All right, so final question then, Whit, and you mentioned it already, but I just want to give you an opportunity to do so one more time. Where can people go to follow what you guys are doing to get more information like this and to stay up to date? Yeah, just go to, we don't do a magazine or anything like that, so everything that we have is on our website, and that's trct.org. And if you sign up there, um, you will get a weekly update, you know, on you know what's going on in Congress. You'll have some fun stuff too. Uh, I think our website does a really good job, and there are a variety of things you go through it. We have a, you know, a site on you know just pushing back against the takeover of public lands. We have another site called sportsmanscountry.org. This petition site that really calls on sportsmen to weigh in on how do we you know, making sure we better manage the lands we have. Uh, that's better forest management to um, you know, better, you know, facilities, you know, the, from everything from campgrounds to roads to trails. Um, but you will see if you go through that site that if you're a sportsman, there's going to be something in there that's interesting to you. And if you have questions, you know, it's, we also have a staff directory there and you just click on somebody's name and, you know, get their email address and send them a note and just ask some more questions. And if you also, we have some great premiums from some of our friends like Sitka and First Light and others, and feel free to write a check and get something cool. There you go. Well, uh, I said at the beginning, and I'll say it again. I I personally check your guys' site almost daily. Um, it's it's some of the very best stuff out there to help us keep track of what's happening. So I highly recommend anyone if you're not already signed up for that newsletter, if you're not already checking out their blog and their website, you really should do it. So, what keep up the great work, and uh, thank you so much for being here. Well, Mark, keep up your great work too, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. And that's it for us today, folks. Uh, a short one, but interesting and important stuff. And part of the reason why this is a quick one and why there wasn't the long intro is because actually right now, if you're listening to this, when this podcast drops, I am actually out in North Dakota. 
I mentioned this on last week's episode, but I'm out there right now shed hunting and scouting and figuring some stuff out out there in western North Dakota with my buddy Furter and my dog Boone and having a grand old time, hopefully. And if you're interested in following along with that trip, you can check out, assuming that I've got internet service where I'm at, which hopefully I will, I'll be posting lots of updates on the Wired to Hunt Instagram account. And we're going to try to do semi-live YouTube videos while we're out there documenting the adventure. So head on over to the Wired to Hunt YouTube channel. Check out what we've posted so far. And if for some reason we don't have that service, I'll be posting all these videos when I get home, which should be soon. So thanks for checking those out. And then finally, want to give a big thank you to our partners who help make all of this possible. So big thanks to... Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, the Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And of course, thank you all for listening. I appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate you paying attention and you know stepping up to help out on some of these types of issues. We couldn't we couldn't do this kind of stuff without you guys. Your support, your interest, your energy is what fuels this podcast and it's what fuels the future of hunting in this country and this continent. So big props to all of you. Thanks for being awesome and stay wired to hunt.